Welcome to Key Exchanges in the 901 Podcast. It's the podcast where we share the real stories of the real estate community here in Memphis. These are the stories that help every key change hands, the stories that are shaping the real estate market in our city. I'm Dane Williams, your key connection for home insurance, and I'll be your host today. And we are recording today's show from the fabulous Shoemaker Insurance Solutions Studios. And guys, we have a good one today. Um, I know it probably feels like hyperbole hearing me say that uh, every single week, but guys, I am uh, super, super, super jacked up to chat with our rock star guest today. In the second segment, I'll be chatting with Tia Jennings with Keller Williams Realty. And in addition to being one of my favorite real estate follows on social media, she's just an all-around powerhouse, and you do not want to miss our conversation. But first, I get to chat with one of the most distinguished men in Memphis real estate community. His renowned real estate career spans 43 years at this point, and he just keeps finding new ways to level up. He served for eight years on the board of directors at the National Association of Realtors, with four of those being on the executive committee, a dozen years on the board of of the uh, Tennessee Association of Realtors. He's a 2016 Realtors Land Institute National President and 2004 MAR President, and he has just a large stack of trophies to go with his impressive resume. Originally from Covington, Tennessee, this old farm boy has made quite a name for himself. He is a managing broker and the owner of Southern Properties that he owns with his wife, Wendy. He is the father to Meg and Madison, which means he covets your prayers as any father with two college-age girls might do. This achievement is the, uh, that he's most proud of, though, is that he's had 33 years married to Wendy and the life and family they have built together. It is my profound honor and great pleasure to welcome Mr. Bob Turner on the Key Exchanges in the 901. Thanks for coming on the show, Bob. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Man, I'm excited to have you, have you here. One mm-hmm. of the things that I always do, though, is I want to start off every show by figuring out how the heck did we get here? So I need you to hop in the Wayback Machine with me and go, I guess, 40 plus years ago at this point. Tell me, how did you get into real estate? Well, I grew up on a farm in Covington, and um, we always, in the farm business, you always people buy, seeing buying and selling land and changing stuff. And my mother was in real estate when I was graduating from college here in Memphis for the Century 21 franchise. And she said, why don't you get your license? You can help me do some work. Hmm. And so I did. Got my license. I was working in Jackson, Tennessee at the time on a management training program that I signed up for for a year. And I got it and um, didn't do anything with it, just kind of learned a little bit about it. And then my dad called one day and said a friend of his was looking to hire some people in farmland management. They were dealing with European investors that were buying large tracts of farmland all over the southeast United States. And they were looking for somebody to manage all those farms for the European investors. So I went to interview with him, hmm. and he hired me on the spot for real estate. How about that? So you were helping acquire the farmland all over, not just managing it and kind of keeping it running day to day, but also going and finding new farms to invest I actually in. didn't manage. Okay. He hired me to do sales so instead <laughs> of buying and selling instead of managing. How about that? And he went and found somebody else to do the managing. So I was, we, were, we were sourcing out farms under a certain type of criteria for the uh, European investors. Certain, and, and they were large tracks, and so we were doing that. And you're in your early 20s at this point? Uh, 26. 26, okay. Yep. And, and off and running. Uh, what was life like growing up for you in Covington? It was um, a slower type of, of uh, life. We worked a lot on the farms, and everybody knew everybody, and everybody knew what everybody was doing all the time. And so uh, it was a good place to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, very safe with a lot of cousins and a lot of family and we always had work to do on the farm we had cattle operations and farming and so we we were doing stuff and hunting and fishing and just country boys a bunch of rednecks running around having a big time and yeah uh it was good my dad was president of the bank in Covington. my mom was a bookkeeper at a uh, cotton gin and 
my sister was very active in school, and uh, I was too, and uh, I was on the football team. I was too small back then to play, but <laughs> yeah, but it was it was a good time. Uh, it sounds like a small town with your your parents as connected as they are, and as much family as you had. You, you probably couldn't get away with anything in that town oh, because no. everybody knew everybody, huh? If you did something uptown, somebody would call my mother before I ever got home. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Well, your career in real estate has allowed you to garner nearly every real estate trophy that exists and every leadership position in the industry. But the vast majority of your sales have centered around transactions that uh, may not have a structure on them at all, really. Um, How did you find a niche in working in land and just, I guess, on the agricultural side of the business? Well, that's what Bill Thompson was doing when he hired me in I had the background because I, I grew up, I had 40-something head of cattle when I went to college. Hmm. And so we worked on the farm, and we knew the land real well, and we farmed cotton and soybeans and hay and everything like that, so you understood the land. Then you just put the real estate side with it, and he trained me how to do that. And I started sourcing out land in Alabama and Georgia and Texas and everywhere else, and, hmm. you know, we did 1,000 to 5,000 acres up to 20,000 acres. How about that? And the first deal that I sourced out was 5,000 acres in Alabama that we bought and sold. Yeah, and I'm sure you thought that was uh, 5,000 acres at that point. Uh, big farm. That's a big old farm. Still is a big farm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh I imagine it's that that upbringing, that growing up on the farm, because having somebody that could figure out the real estate side of things, it's, yes, you had a license and you were able to do that at this point, but it's that farming knowledge that's hard to replicate in just anyone they were going to hire. It's the people skills and the farm knowledge that go together. Yeah, for sure. I know we have just a ton of residential agents that listen to our show, and um, we're always trying to introduce guests that have different backgrounds and shed some lights on various other aspects, aside from just a standard residential transaction. For the bulk of the deals that you've worked in your career, I mean, are, are they uh, do they have characteristics that line up with a commercial deal, more with a residential deal? Is it something completely different that I don't even know about? Well, to me, every real estate deal is the same. Okay. It's a buyer and, and a seller. And it's, there's a buyer, there's a seller, there's a piece of property, whether it's a house, land, building, whatever it is, whatever you're going to do, development. And I do all types of real estate. Hmm. We buy and sell houses. We bought and sold and fixed up over 300 houses. We've owned farmland in three states. We've bought developments and done developments, and uh, we've been in building programs with home builders building 100 houses a year. And so we, there's not much we haven't done. I've sold uh, every kind of real estate you can sell, whether it's an office building or um, warehouses. We owned um, four million square foot of warehouse space at one time with Bill Thompson and managed it. So every deal is the same, and whether it's a residential deal, you got certain ways of doing it. If it's a land deal, you got certain ways of doing this. If it's a development deal, it's a whole different, whole different story. Mm-hmm. Farmland's a whole different story. But it's still, what is the product? What are you going to do with it? And I'm, I'm a little different from most people. When you, if you call me today and said, I want to I sell my piece of property, whatever it may be. If it's a piece of land, I'll go, okay, where is it? I grab my iPad, grab my iPhone. I've got several apps that I use, and I look it up while you're on the phone. I said, oh, I'll see what it is. And are you doing this and this? And I'll ask the questions and figure out what it is. And then I'll say, well, I'll call you back in a couple of days. I'm going to get in my truck and head out there and look at it. And then I'll call you back and tell you where we're at. Hmm. So it's a matter of walking through the transactions. If a house sale, same way. If we're building new houses, same way. I'm, I'm boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. And when I get involved with it, it is. So I understand all of them. Yeah. And, and they don't, none of them, I don't treat any of them different. They're all the same. 
Well, it's it's almost like you break it down to its simplest form, right? Now, That's right. And there's a lot of complexity that we can add and a lot of nuance to the way that different deals get done. But if you find a way to simplify it, right. then at the end of the day, we're just trying to work a deal That's out. That's right. Yeah, don't don't make yourself problems. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, we talked about you early on uh, being essentially tasked with uh, helping uh, acquire um, farms. Um, at what point in your career was there this transition from, you know, you're just this old farm boy that's, that's got his niche that he's working in to where now you're doing all these other things that you described. When did that shift happen for you in your career? Well, it kind of started in um, 1984, year of 1984. Bill Thompson I was working with, um, he passed away. I went out on my own. And I've been out on my own under him anyway. I was uh, doing what I did anyway. But I went out on my own, and I started looking at different things to do. And the first thing I did was I did hydroponics at the Agri Center. Okay. Growing lettuce and— I don't even know what that is, so you have to help me here. That's growing lettuce and tomatoes and other plants in water in greenhouses. Okay. You see the, um, the lettuce in the stores all the time, the cucumbers in the store, and tomatoes, and they're hydroponically grown. Controlled environment 24 hours a day. And I, had, I was the first thing on the Agri Center doing that, and had, um, we grew over 3,000 heads of lettuce a week. How about that? And we serviced 140 stores in Memphis. And that was, you know, aquatic farming, that, and I sold it to Russians, I sold it to Jap- Japanese, Saotomi Island. It was a technology and setup that I worked on. In the meantime, I was still doing real estate. Hmm. And so I saw the different parts of the world doing that stuff. And then um, I just went out on my own, and I started following the money. Money in real estate changes. Sometimes it's housing, sometimes it's apartments, sometimes it's office, sometimes it's development, sometimes it's, you know, whatever it may be, commercial stuff. So I follow the money. So wherever the money's going is where I'm going. So, for instance, um, in the 2008 when the world crashed, you couldn't give away a house. Mm -hmm. You couldn't give it back to the bank. Well, land was the hottest item there was. It was going up at... 15, 20% a month. Hmm. And so the connections through NAR and the Realtors Land Institute kept us from going completely broke because, I mean, you, you couldn't make any money. We had houses everywhere. You couldn't give them away. Hmm. And um, I went to a meeting in Chicago, and I, I had a farm in Arkansas, and I said, we're going to probably sell our farm. It's third on the list. So it's going down the list to, you know, keep living. And guys started sticking cards in my pocket going, call me. I got a buyer. I got a buyer. I got a buyer. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What are y'all doing? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, in Iowa and Illinois and all that, it's already taken off. So we're over 10000 an acre in price now, and it's going up every month. Mm. I go, really? And so we talked about how it was working and all that stuff. And I came back home, and in 30 days, I sold over 12,000 acres of land. How about that? Yeah, and that's— uh, Just overnight. Yeah, with the amount of real estate transactions that weren't going on that were so right. commonplace just, you know, six, 12 months earlier, uh, and then that's having the right. shift your focus completely, that's something you got to have vision for. That's right. So that's why I say follow the money. Sure. And then, as like right now, housing. I mean, land is still good, but it's not much for sale. But mm-hmm. housing is so hot, you kind of target housing. You do developments. You do uh, new houses, whatever it may be. So you move in and out of different markets, but you got to be looking at the future, a mm-hmm. couple of years out, three years out. Used to, every three or four years, we had a swing. Now it's about every two years mm-hmm. you have a change. Yeah. 
So you, you got to do that. And you've got to be willing to uh, to become a student of the business and be able to to work those transactions because if you're just set on doing business the way that you've always done it, then you've got to ride the roller coaster as opposed to being able to shift when you need to. That's right. Um, you, you've demonstrated just a passion for helping advance the industry through all the different roles that you served in. Uh, in 1996, you were one of the founding members of Tennessee's chapter of the Realtors Land Institute before you became president then in 2016 of the national uh, chapter there. Uh, you've had a whole host of committees and task force along the way in several places. What was it that prompted you to just get so involved in advocating for the industry? Knowledge and background and reputation. I've been known to stand up and tell people exactly the way it is, and they may not like it, but that's the way it is, and and the knowledge to go with that. When we started, Richard Kelsey and Keith Morris and me and John Green and several others were at a convention. We saw the RLI booth, and we started talking about it, and we all came back and decided to form a chapter here. And RLI is based on trust, trust and honesty more than anything, and that's the farmland business too. And so we all started doing that, and we saw that we had something that wasn't involved in the uh, in the marboard and everything else was the land side of it. You know, it's all residential, but there's a lot of commercial. And a lot of the presidents had been commercial presidents, mm-hmm. and they were the ones that always kind of changed the tone from it being just all residential. And so that's when I started seeing that we had a value to bring to the other members to show that there are different ways of doing things. Yeah. And that's where I started changing and started really getting involved. And so this was 96 uh, mm-hmm. that you guys were launching it. How well received was it? I mean, were the Oh, it was great. Yeah. Well, we had we had uh, catfish fry in the back parking lot of Mar, and we had over 100 people there from Mar. Really? And they were like, wow, this is great, because they all knew us anyway. Mm-hmm. But they didn't realize, and they knew we did land, but they didn't realize what RLI was. Mm-hmm. And so it just it worked out great. It was very well received. That's great. Um, I know both locally and nationally, the industry has changed a ton since you were the Mar president in t- mm-hmm. 2004. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we've got a good bit of time since then. Uh, how do you see things now as the industry has looked compared to the way it was then when you were running the local association? It's a lot faster. Okay. <laughs> Technology changes that. It, it um, It's a lot more lawyer-oriented. You've got all these, you know, disclosures you got to do and all the contracts we used to use a two or three page contract now we're at 28 pages time we print everything out for a residential deal Mm -hmm. land deal we'll still use two pages but it just depends on what it is but the it's a it's still a person-to-person industry Mm -hmm. if you get out of the person-to-person you're in a whole different business model there are people that don't do the person-to-person and they do good but they're in bigger markets Around here, it's still everybody knows who you are and what you're doing. Your reputation is so important. And if you get a bad reputation, it's kind of hard to build it back up in a, in a market without, you know, really working super hard to get over that. Sure. It yeah. goes back to your Covington roots, right? Everybody knows you in some That's way. Right. And it's just a slightly, uh, slightly bigger playing field at this point. But right. still, you, you can burn a reputation quick. So the technology also allows you to pick out the right people where they're at. So if your reputation is not is good you want you're not going to get referrals you're not going to get phone calls there's a lot of reasons that you should do it the right way and that's part of what the realtors is about doing it the right way and go by the code of ethics and things like that but the business is good we've got our fingertips we can get any information we want you can get training anywhere you want you can get help anywhere you want and our national association provides a lot of that through our state and local associations 
Do you feel like that uh, is essentially making a, a more professional, better quality version of Realtor just because the information is so easily available? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, and we have a lot of people trying to take our business away from us, but we're still the source of the real truth. Sure. Because well, we're, we're the boots on the ground. Absolutely right. That, that relationship, mm-hmm. that face-to-face. Mm-hmm. That's right. Currently, you are the uh, the NAR chair for the Commercial Federal Policy Committee. Uh, and I, with all the titles and things that you do, it can be a mouthful, right? But you've served on the NAR Board of Directors for several years and, and been on several MAR committees and local committees as well. It's not that you've just done one or the other. How different is it playing at that level on the national level? I would imagine it's different than the committee meetings I'm sitting in now right. locally. But how much does that change from the local to the levels that you're at now? Well, if you take a MAR committee of your own, you know everybody's sitting in the room. Mm-hmm. You know what business they do. You know how they do their business. And you know what part of town they're doing it in. Kids may go to school together. That's right. Into each other so you know them real well. You get the national level, you don't know in the city they're from until you sit down and try to figure out where they're from and what they do. And so you got to get to know people. And so you're making a decision for a big, big ocean instead of a little small pond. Mm-hmm. And so you got to know how California does what we're talking about and how Georgia knows what we're talking about or how Texas knows or how Tennessee knows what we're doing and how does it affect their business types that they're doing. So you've got to think a little longer and it takes a lot longer to get things done because I do it this way, they do it totally different. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, let's do this. They go, no, let's do this. So you get in those committees, and you got to work through what's good for every sector, big city, small city, rural, urban, everything. And so it takes a lot longer to work through those what's good for everybody. Wow. Yeah, we want to do this, but we can't do it because it hurts them. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of you got to work through it. But the committee I'm running this year, I'm chair of this year, is it affects everybody. Just it's, federal it's, policy. It's policy. It's, you know, what's the tax laws? What's the waters of the U.S. doing? What's the environmental issues? What's the border doing? What's uh, endangered species? All kinds of things like that that we deal with on a, I mean, we've been working on the waters of the U.S. for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not new stuff every year. It depends on what the administration comes out with and what Congress comes out with and how it affects private property rights. Because your private property rights in your house or your farm or your business is what we protect at NAR. Mm-hmm. That's the main thing. Under all is the land. That's part of our preamble. And that's where we protect the private property rights. Because if you lose private property rights, that's the basis of a free society. You don't have a free society anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's we, uh, we discuss all the bills and regulations and things going on that could happen locally, that we think will end up federally. So we discuss a lot of issues in the committee. For um, someone that's sitting in that seat having to make decisions based on the entire country, but yet you still have a, a local business. You, mm-hmm. you you are dealing with people that are going to school with your kids and everything mm-hmm. you know that uh, goes alongside running that local business. I have to imagine there's been at some point in one of these dang committees you've been on that uh, you're almost the committee's making a decision that may not be the best for what right. you've got, but it is the best for globally what what needs to happen across the entire country. All the time. Um, I, that's something I just imagine you know having to eat my hat yeah. leaving there because that's that's a tough spot to be in, right? And, and sometimes you do that away. And and I've been in those situations, and I've been uh, I've been on the executive committee at NAR eleven years, different years in different positions, and. Um, that's less than 60 people, and that's just under the board of directors, and they make the decisions that go into the board of directors' room. Mm-hmm. 
And I've been the only person in the room saying no. Mm. And they tried to get me to change my vote and everything. Nope, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not for it. And, you know, that's just me. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we need you to change your vote. And I go, you got 41-something votes and you got one negative vote. Move on. <laughs> so it's, it's, just, it's just business. Yeah. Uh, with, with some of the things that you've been pulled into, I know I, I saw the videos we were doing prep for this where President Trump was introducing you before you got to speak a handful of years ago. Um, and that, that's got to be a cool thing. But there's definitely just some level of uh, politics that you've moved into from, from the old farm boy that's just trying to buy a couple farms to where there's, there's some real you know, political movements happening in the rooms that you're in and in the conversations you're having. What was it that drew you to that side of the industry? Because that's a long way from I'm going to help some folks buy a couple farms. Uh, it actually started when I was in 4-H and FFA. We, we would go meet with the governor and our representatives from Covington. We'd all get in a bus and go and meet. And we started getting involved in what issues were going on. And then as we moved on up the ladder, we did it with in real estate, we started at the local. We'd be downtown at city council and county commission fighting for whatever they were trying to do that was going to hurt our business. And it led to the na- to the state level, which in turn led to the national level. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the private property rights and knowing land. Mm-hmm. Land is where everything comes first. Every arrow they're going to shoot is coming first to the land. Most, most of the regulations are out of the way the time it gets to the house mm-hmm. or a building. It's all in the land side. And so from a development standpoint, you see all of those errors and all those problems and how do you work around them and what do you got to do to do it. So I just stayed in the fight all the time and became the person that could answer the questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, across the country, there's a lot of RLI guys that will stand up and say, or girls too, they'll stand up and say, no, here's what we're supposed to do and here's our rights and you're not going to take our rights away. And so that knowledge and that ability to stand up and have a discussion about here's what that does to us and here's how it affects our business and here's what it does to the value of the property, be able to stand with somebody, you don't care what level they're at, and say, here's how it works. They don't know that in Washington, Mm D.C. I've had many conversations. They look at me and go, we've never heard that. I go, why not? Mm -hmm. You know, so that's what led it, it. It's that passion to protect our business and our livelihood and our family way of life that led me there. And I've had so many people that have helped me along the way and said, keep going, keep going, keep going. And, you know, I get an invitation, I go. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've always done. And it was the same way with President Trump. Mm -hmm. we, We get... We have a person that works directly with the White House. We have a full lobbying office in D.C. We have a national building that overlooks the Capitol, that we have a full staff of lobbyists that protect our rights for us, mm-hmm. work for us every day. They're walking in and out of um, FHA and USDA and all these offices with the bureaucracy side, as I call it, walking in, talking direct, direct to those people working for the government. And then you've got people that work with senators and representatives every day. So they've got a full staff that does that. Well, they talk to our members, me and many others across the country, and say, how does this affect you? What do we need to do? How do we get through this? And so that's how I got invited to the White House. We got an invitation from, from the White House to NAR that said, we're having an Opportunity Zone Summit. We, we want to rep from NAR here. Well, I was commercial liaison, so I got the phone call and said, be here. 
I was at a meeting in North Carolina, and they said, reroute. We need you here by 8 o'clock in the morning. So I got in about 1 o'clock in the morning, and 12 o'clock, I'm in the White House and spent six hours there with 120 people that not a single one of them practiced real estate. How about that? They were all government officials, everybody in the room except me. Hmm. And so I got to answer a lot of questions that day because they'd say, well, we want to do this. How do we do it? And I go, well, here's how we do it in the real world. <laughs> and so that's kind of how the day went on. And that meeting is what led to him asking me to speak on stage about Opportunity Zones. How that's how that? I got there. Yeah. Just sitting there answering questions and doing my normal thing, running my mouth, as I say. But yeah. uh, it's uh, it's an honor to to be in that position. And, and that day led to an ongoing relationship with the White House. Yeah. They would email me and call me and ask me questions and and get you know information and you know it's it's it was very humbling to be in that position that you're getting a call from the most prominent house in the world yeah. that says what do we do yeah and I go you're calling me <laughs> so it's uh it was an honor very yeah. much an honor nice. special day. That's cool. Uh, old, old Bob from Covington here is, yeah, uh, right. is is getting calls from the leader of the free world. That's, that's right. Uh, that's unique. Yep. Uh, one thing, just kind of shifting gears a little bit, I'm curious about Natida to my normal life. I'm I'm in insurance, and a lot of insurance is trying to fit every situation into a certain box so it can be assigned a level of risk and in turn figure out how much they're going to charge you for the insurance. So much of what you've done in your career, it's a blank slate. There's not even a box that's been dreamed up yet to put it into. Right. Um, and, and that's something that it just feels like those ideologies are, are in contrast of one another. Have you run into situations to where just some of the ventures you've gone through, it's probably been a struggle to come up with insurance because you don't, you don't fit in a box a lot of right. times, right? Many times it's that way. And uh, the one that uh, comes to mind was back in the early 80s. And uh, we had uh, we'd bought a lot of cotton warehouses from the federal compress, and they were in four states. And when we bought them, they had insurance on them, and um, the people that were operating them kept operating them under us for a little while. When it came time to renew the insurance, nobody would insure them. Hmm. And we got with a gentleman here in town and and started talking about. It. He said, "Well, let's just write our own policy." I said, "What do you mean, write our own policy?" He said, well, "Yeah, we can write it and take it to Lloyd's of London and." get it and sell the shares out and put it in place. So we did. We wrote our own policy. We took the existing policy and worked through it and worked through what we had and what issues they had with it and wrote our own policies and sold the shares out in uh, Lloyds of London, which is it's like the stock exchange. you got all these people sitting on a, on a board. It's not a company. It's, a, it's kind of an association. Yeah. And so Finchurch was the one that we dealt with, and they bought 40% of the, of the policy, and then they sold other shares to other people within uh, Lloyds of London, and they wrote the policy, and we put it in place. Yeah. When you're doing stuff at that level, I mean, it, it's just a, a different level of math than, than most of the, uh, you know, everyday insurance folks like myself are dealing with because mm -hmm. you're you're really having to, to build something out, one, that's going to be viable math-wise, so nobody's not so the company is not taking too much risk, right. but also so that the investors are going to be able to, you know, make a return on the investment they're making. There is right. some level of risk always, but uh, that's a that's a different thing for sure. Yeah, and so we deal with it a lot in trailer parks too. We own trailer parks too, and everybody says, "Well, what are you going to do if a tornado comes through?" I said, "Well, I got insurance to cover it." Mm -hmm. And so, how do you do that? And I said, "Well, you got business loss income. Sure, the trailers are mostly owned by the people, so mine's dirt and infrastructure." And, some, and a few trees and maybe a few buildings. So you write the, you get the right policy in place and you're covered. And you don't, you don't sit there and worry about a storm coming through or something. I mean, yeah, you don't want it to happen, but 
you insure yourself and keep running. Yeah. Well, and sometimes too, you, you feel like uh, there's always the news story, the tornado that hits the trailer park, right? But mm-hmm. uh, realistically, your your ownership's taking it. That dirt's not going anywhere. That's right. Uh, so that's, that's right. Um, now, if I owned all the trailers, that's a different conversation. Di- different animal. <laughs> different animal. That's right. I want to change gears here and learn more about you, the man, when you're uh, away from the world of real estate. Uh, do you ever have any uh, interesting jobs or side hustles along the way? Well, I started the farmer's market at the Agri Center. That was interesting. And I did the hydroponics, and uh, that was very interesting. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, not really. I mean, I was mostly just normal work, uh, you know, landscaping houses, irrigating houses, building houses, building shops. I mean, just we're always working on stuff. You like to sweat for your jobs is what it sounds I like. I work Man, every day. You, yeah, you, you got to. Yeah, we got get- cattle and you know, we're having baby calves, and, you know, during the snow, we had a baby calf born on the first night. It was about four degrees, and mm. you're out there trying to figure out how to keep him alive and keep him warm and keep him with mama. And so there's a lot of things in our real life that we deal with living on the farm. So Our lives are very different, Bob, is what I'm realizing. Mm-hmm. I'm an avid endorsement, okay? I'm not trying to get involved with baby calves in four degrees. That's not for me. <laughs> yep. Well, it's uh, when that little baby's looking at you in cold, you pick them up and take them in the laundry room is what you do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, what are you into when you were uh, not uh, not working? You have any hobbies that you uh, you like um, to duck hunting? Uh, we've got a, a place in Arkansas that we own. We bought years ago and developed it into a uh, Class A farm and duck hunting place. And so I'm always getting ready for hunting season and then hunting season and then getting ready for the next hunting season. So that's that's one of my main passions. And that's fine. The other one is spending time with my family. I mean, we we live on the farm. We uh, Winnie and the girls ride the horses, and uh, you know we, we're outdoors people and. So spending time with them, that's that's the most important part. Yeah. Um, what uh, what movie have you seen more times than any other? Top Gun. Really? <laughs> yeah. Just a uh, fan of the movie, I suppose? Yeah, just like on TV, too. So, like, you can always catch yeah. 10, 20 minutes of it, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, are you watching anything fun on TV right now? Well, we're, uh, we're watching Greystone, uh, uh, Yellowstone. 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 And uh, it's pretty good. Wendy's been wanting to watch it. And I sit down and watch sports or news or something, and I don't watch a lot of... I don't watch any just normal TV. It's just so crazy. I don't watch it anymore. Yeah. Well, hey, watching the news can be crazy in its oh, own yeah. right, too. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that keeps me in tune with what's going on with our business and all. So uh, I watch the news just to keep up with the, what's happening in the world. I hear you. Uh, what's something weird that you recommend everyone try at least once? Cornbread with uh, Cairo syrup. Okay, uh, so I was with you there at the beginning, and then you threw in the Cairo syrup there on me. You know, what, you know what clear Cairo syrup I, is? Or? I, I know what it looks like. I don't know that I've ever decided you know, I'm going to well, put it on food. Most people make pies with it and stuff, but uh, cornbread and butter and some Cairo syrup, that'll, you got a dessert you won't ever forget. Okay, it's, it's <laughs> on the list. It's on the list. Uh, favorite trip that you've taken or, or one that you take with your family that you, uh, you've enjoyed? Hilton Head, Hilton Head Island, okay. South Carolina. We go there every year. Every single year? Yep. Uh, what was your draw there originally? Uh, in the land business, uh, Bill Thompson, we went there. Uh, his family used to go there, and we went there, and I just fell in love with it. And and uh, Wendy and I got married, and we started going there, and the kids are going there, and and uh, we'll, we'll be going in a few months. So it's a, it's a great place. Yeah, that's fun. Great place for the kids to enjoy. It's safe. It's, it's very comfortable. It's got great food. So many things to do, but yet it's it's quiet. No, that scenery there is uh, it's hard to beat. Yeah, uh, it's hard to beat for yeah. sure. Uh, what's your favorite Memphis date night restaurant? Well, Rendezvous and the Peabody is what I'd say. 
go down and eat some pick a rib and go over to the Peabody and have some drinks and watch the world go by. Okay. Well, yeah, your, your date night's not uh, not high-class fine dining, but you like what you like, right? All right. All right. Uh, what's the weirdest thing that has happened to you in real estate? I wouldn't call it the weirdest thing, but probably the, the story that gets told most is about the um, transaction at Lakeview uh, where 10,000 acres sold a 10,000 acre farm that had trailer park and horse barn and commercial and land and river and lakes and all that stuff and uh, uh, sold it to a group and um, uh, the owner, I sold it for the owner, sold it to a group I knew and all three of us won. Mm -hmm. uh, the seller got what they wanted and got it quick. The uh, the buyers were so excited they got it, and then I got uh, 150 acres of land and trailer park, and all is my part. How about that? And so uh, it was a lot of people in town call it the best land deal ever in Memphis. Yeah, because you got some free land out of it, it sounds like. That's, yeah, a, that's, that's yeah, a good spot. Free income producing property. Oh, that's <laughs> a win all day long. Uh, what's the app on your phone you couldn't live without? Well, I got three of them. Okay. Map Measure Pro. Land Glide and Google Earth. <laughs> this all goes back to land, doesn't it? It all That's starts right. at land. You can, you can, I can sit right here and in and, and two or three minutes tell you everything where your property is, what I see on it, and everything else with those maps. There you go. Well, last question, Bob. If people want to get in touch with you to talk about buying or selling property, how can they do that? Just call me on my cell phone, 901 302 8901. I'm with Southern Properties and most people in town know me, so just holler. Somebody will know where I'm at. Good deal. And we'll make sure we've got his contact information in the show notes as well. Bob, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on the show. Yes, sir. Thank you for asking me. All right, guys, don't go anywhere just yet, though, because up next, I'll get to sit down with one of the more impressive agents I've had the pleasure of meeting. You're listening to Key Exchanges in the 901. Key Exchanges in the 901 is powered by partnerships with exceptional businesses in our city. Businesses that invest and give back to the Memphis real estate community. This week's feature partner is Memphis Title Company. Yep, And as you heard, Memphis Title is this week's feature partner. Memphis Title has been serving realtors and builders in our city and helping make sure your clients have the professional closing experience that they deserve on their big day. They are committed to their real estate partners by offering tons of education opportunities to make sure agents fully understand all that their clients are signing at the closing table and preparing those agents to better serve the real estate community as a whole. Any of their attorneys, whether it's Mark Meese, Mike Kristoff, recently named Mar Affiliate of the Year, Lauren Merriweather, or Nick Gilder, any of them would be happy to connect with you to discuss an upcoming closing you may have or to get a better understanding of the home closing process. You can visit their website at www.memphistitleco.com or call, or call their office at 901-754-2080. I'll also put all of their information and their attorney's email addresses in the show notes for this episode. I'm a firm believer in Memphis Title because they, they are who I have turned to whenever I've had contract questions, and they've always gone out of their way to make sure we figured it out together, and I know they'd love to do the same for you. Memphis Title Company is today's feature partner on key exchanges of the 901. My next guest is someone that I have admired her work ethic, her perseverance, and her creativity on social media for a while now, and I am excited to admire her in person here today. 
she will be the first to admit that you know a lot of things weren't easy that have come in her life, but she has continued to press on and overcome any challenges she's faced along the way. Her clients, they have been the beneficiaries of her tenacious drive. She's in her eighth year in the business and a proud realtor with Keller Williams Realty, a lifelong Memphian, and one of those people that just has an infectious personality that you want to be around. She is, uh, she is the fiance to Sebastian, mom to David, Daniel, and Dallas, and it is my profound honor and great pleasure to welcome Miss Tia Jennings on the Key Exchanges in the 901. Thanks for coming on the show, Tia. Thanks, Dane. Thank you so much for having me. No, I'm, I'm excited to have you here. And you know how I start off each one of my interviews. I got to figure out how the heck did we get here. So hop in the Wayback Machine with me. Let's go eight <laughs> years ago now and tell me, how did you get into real estate? I was inspired to get into real estate with my first home buying experience. Um, I come, I'm a first generation buyer. My mom didn't own her home. So there wasn't a lot of that around me, so I was inspired to be a beacon of change in my community and what was happening around me. So that's that's what inspired me to get into real estate later on. Yeah. Uh, what was life like growing up for you then? It was it was tough. I grew up in the inner city areas of Memphis, um, well below the poverty line. My mom was a struggling single mom, so life was not easy. For us coming up, so you got a lot of brothers and sisters. I have one sister and two brothers. Okay, so, so it, was, it was four of us. Good bit though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the older, younger. Where do you fall in the? the I'm the oldest um, of my three siblings. So. Yeah. So uh, you probably also uh, did did some of the just taking care of everybody, and I'm sure that probably uh, carries through to the day, right? You just, yeah. <laughs> always, always taking care of everybody. Mom worked a lot, so that a lot of that responsibility for caring for them fell on me. Um, Coming the, up. The people that, I guess, kind of knew you and kind of watched, uh, watched the big sister, the daughter that uh, was kind of coming up, would they, would they have predicted this path to real estate for you, or is this something that would have surprised them? I think it would be surprising for some people because I've always been in the beauty industry. Even when I was in high school, I was doing my friend's hair and makeup. I, I was doing people for prom, and, you know, I just, I really... I never saw myself doing anything other than being in the beauty industry, but mm-hmm. life brings about change, right? Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> um, and, and 2020 seemed to be just, I mean, uh, a, a reset year for you as you were kind of making an adjustment in your career and, and unlearning some habits and learning some new ones to replace them. And you uh, you definitely had the results speak for themselves as you finished uh, just closing a whole truckload of units as you were doing it. Uh, what was it that was going on in your career as you were, you were making these adjustments and kind of, uh, I guess, vaulting yourself to this great success that you've had? For me, it was a it was a reset in many ways because the way that I grew up, I was so preconditioned to feel like that things had to be hard and that's just the way that they were. And I had to realize that there's an easier way to get things done. You don't always have to make things hard for yourself. And some of the systems that you have in place are not benefiting you. So let's just, you know, clear everything off the table and, and start over and reintroduce one thing at a time and master that one thing to make other things easier. So it's all about that one thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And essentially you took it back down to the basics and said... Bare bones. Yeah. <laughs> um, how hard is that? Because you're 
you know, you had six, seven years of history of doing this a certain way and essentially to take all of those systems and, and processes, relationships that you've built and kind of throw it uh, out the window, that's got to be a, a scary feeling almost to say you're going to undo whatever level of success you've had so far, right? Yeah, the, the ego is fragile. I had to really sit with myself and accept that hey, maybe you're not as good at what you do as you think you are. So let's start over. Some qualities you have are great, but it was a lot of self-awareness for me and just breaking everything down and saying, hey, you got to humble yourself and and do what's best for the future you. Mm, that's good. And that takes a... Uh it takes a certain level of uh, emotional and mental maturity to get to Gosh. the point uh, that uh, <laughs> most of us don't want to be at, I'm sure. Hopefully we can just avoid having to do that. That's hard. Yeah. Uh, you'll, you'll have to help me here because I, I know you said you've uh, you spent time in the beauty industry. I'm not sure exactly uh, what that means. Uh, not a lot of time spent on my hair, if you can believe it or not. <laughs> um, but w- what exactly were you doing and, and how has that translated to your real estate career? I um, was in the salon industry for 15 years. Yeah, 15. Okay. Um, typically, our span physically working behind the chair, last time I checked, was like 20 years. So um, I was independent um, for the first five years of my career, and then I ventured out and I owned a salon for 10 years. So um, I was an independent contractor and salon owner for 15 years. I had operators under me and Hmm. We were you said pretty the, successful. The lifespan is 20 years just because you, you break down from yeah, that, that the, hard time, being mm-hmm. on your feet and everything? The toll it takes on your body. And actually, um, I specialized in extensions, and I was doing a lot of cutting, and it was weighing on my hands. So that was one of the, the things that um, inspired me to start looking into something else because I stepped out from the salon really from servicing clients to more of a management owner position and just kind of let my manager take over. Um, but my my body was telling me that, hey, you're going to need to probably be doing something else. And I saw a lot of 80-year-olds doing real estate, so I said, why not? I can do this <laughs> until I'm 80, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and at that point, I mean, thinking 15 years in, you're still young, though. Like, it's not something where your body should be giving out on you. That's just a tough business. I, I cut a lot up here. So, you know, 25 30 clients a day, me and my assistant, we were rocking it out, and it was, you know, the same motion over and over and over again. It, it's My hand hurts now from even trying to type a little bit, so mm-hmm. it, it does take its toll. People think it's easy, but it's it's really tough on your hands and your body. Yeah. Well, seeing that many people a day, though, I have to imagine those relationships that you form, though, that's got to be a beneficial thing for you as you think about launching your real estate career, right? Absolutely. A lot of lifelong relationships built. And even in the real estate uh, community, I was at the office the other day and looking at the the um, licenses on the wall. And I'm like, wow, I really touched a lot of lives from the beauty industry that spilled over into real estate. I'm like, I cut her hair and we worked at the barbershop together and I used to do her makeup and I did her wedding. So it's, I didn't realize how many relationships were built from behind the salon chair. So that's that's, interesting. That's really, really cool. Um, One thing that's interesting to me is you essentially, and you've got your real estate practice you run, you've run beauty business and both of them incredibly demanding. I think it's impressive to see that you've got, uh, Three kids that you're raising while juggling all of this, the chaos that is naturally inherent in your life. How do you manage all of that while trying to, you know, uh, still run a, a profitable business? Well, 
I am a... I'm the type... My, my children are pretty self-sufficient now. So they... their ages are what? Where are they at now? Uh, 15, 16, and I have a soon-to-be 10-year-old. Okay. And she is just the most mature little thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like, I'm like, come give mommy advice. She's like a, a little adult. Yeah. So they're very self-sufficient, you know, and I'm, I'm just... A manager, pretty much. You know, I, I'm like, hey, you guys, I've taught you everything that I know. It's time to see if you're going to implement those <laughs> mm-hmm. um, skills that I've taught you. So, yeah. they're doing pretty well. Homeschool uh, is going amazing. I was a, a nervous wreck the first week. I'm like, how am I going to work and teach and work the computer? I don't know how to work the Teams or Zoom or you know, it was a lot. But they are tech savvy and they jumped right in there. I'm like, okay, kids. Mm-hmm. Let me know when you're hungry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good. You know, when we see some of these things that uh, scare us as parents and we start to see that our, our kids are maybe not as fragile as we uh, yes. we think they are. They are resilient and tough and, and make it happen. That was a big thing for me, letting go and not being a overwhelming, compulsive parent, just smothering them. So Yeah. Um, you you almost have a, uh, a freakish work ethic too to be able to do all the things that your your life requires of you and, and to perform at such a high level while, while you're doing it. Where do you think that drive comes from in your life? For me, stability was really important for me. Stability and security, and and I saw that even though my mother worked really really hard, it's just something that we didn't seem to be able to attain. So for me, it's, it's, it's the motivation to not have to suffer with that anxiety anymore, to just be able to provide for my family and help other people is, is the most important thing too. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I feel like uh, kind of seeing the strive to say, look, I'm going to make sure that we don't have that that worry about where the next thing is going to come from. That's something that can be an incredibly powerful motivator when you've been there yeah. and, and knowing that, look, this is the life I want to provide for my kids. Right. Um, that's good. One piece of the market that you are uh, particularly passionate about, I know um, you work with a ton of first-time homebuyers. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it that you feel like has drawn you to that group probably more so than others. I remember the first time. It was it was the first time for me. Um, and I can't speak to how other agents work or what their onboarding process is or, or what that entails for them. But what I experienced was coming from someone who I didn't know anybody who had owned property. I didn't know what owning property looked like. I didn't know what the home buying process looked like. And I remember the fear that I felt and the, you know, when I bought my first property, the the internet was not something that we turned to for a resource. There was no YouTube at the time. There wasn't really a lot that you could Google about home ownership. And then if I could, I, is this real? Can I trust it? So, you know, for me, it was, I need, I wanted to learn and I had a quest for knowledge. And I remember that feeling. So, I channeled all of that energy into providing what I felt like I lacked in my first experience to the buyers that I work with. That's so good because I know everybody as they're they're buying the first home, 
you feel like just everybody else knows something you don't. Like, like you missed the day of school when they taught you how to do this, right? <laughs> yeah. And everybody else knew how to do it. And somehow I'm lost as last year's Easter eggs trying to figure it out, right? Yeah. So having someone that's going to come alongside them and say, look, I'm, I'm here and I'm going to speak to that. No questions are too dumb. Let's let's yeah. help. That's, that's a needed trait that I, I think just getting people to spend the time. It's not quick, right, to be able to do that, but it is mm-hmm. something where you serve your buyers well. Yes. How uh, how informed do you think the first time home buyers are of all the things that are required to get them ready to purchase a home right now with the crazy market um, as just nuts as it is to try to get a home under contract at this point? How how knowledgeable do you think those first time home buyers are? Um, there's certain information that we as realtors can provide that buyers can't see, like the up to date, up to the minute numbers. Um, I've had buyers who are not accepting of my onboarding process, (laughs) Um, and they just, I need to see the house. I'm like, well, you know, realtors do more than just turn keys and let you in the property. Mm -hmm. Let me show you what you, you know, you don't know if you don't know. You don't know what you don't know is what I'm trying to say. That's right. Um, So there's a lot of back-end information that realtors can provide that buyers can't readily see on the internet, which they do have a lot more information than they used to, but not nearly as much as they need. Yeah. I think if you've got someone that's that buyer that just wants you to unlock the house oh, for gosh. them, that's, that's not going to have a value system that aligns <laughs> no. with yours, right? You're both no. going to hate that transaction because you want to do more and they want to do less. And that's a, that's a tough spot to where I'm sure just working through a deal with that type of client just feels like you're banging your head against it's the wall. It's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything unique that you try to do with your buyers that's going to best prepare them to have a, uh, a successful home buying transaction with as, as few tiers as possible? Um, for me, I am a practical person. I try to talk with fact and statistic. So what we're doing when I bring my buyers in, I'm like, look, Properties in this area that you're looking in, they're selling at 104%. So that means that you're going to have to offer list price plus 4% if you want to win. And that is not me saying to them, well, you need to go over list price. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes that resonates as, oh, you're the sucky agent, or maybe not sucky, because at this point they trust you. You're the pushy agent that's just trying to up her commission by tacking on dollars on Mm -hmm. the back end. So. By providing that data on the front end, they get a better understanding of the market because you you wouldn't go to any game or train for any event without first studying that field first. So we do study the market mm-hmm. on the front end so they're prepared to get out. Well, yeah. I- it's a moving target almost because, yes, we, we put a list price on a house, but given the conditions that we may be in now versus where we were a year ago, where Gosh. we'll be a year from now, it's always kind of moving. And if you don't have someone that's in that world every single day advising you on it, then you can really make a foolish mistake. Absolutely. Um Honestly, I go back and forth about bringing this topic up because I, you know, I don't want it to look a certain way. Uh, but naturally, it seems like the conversation has come up with a lot of my African-American guests that have come on. And that's the topic of fair and affordable housing. I know you are, you're the chair of the committee here locally, right, yes. uh, at, at MAR. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I guess it, it's a concern that I was having. That I don't want it to be perceived, but ultimately I landed on it's an issue. And we got to keep talking about it. And not just people with black or brown skin need to be talking about it because it really does impact all of us. Um, with you being the chair of that committee, I guess, what's going on in that area right now that we're seeing as it relates to fair and affordable housing? Well, for me, a concern... Um 
And it's the same conversation, different day. This has spanned over the course of centuries. It's not going to be solved in my lifetime or my kids, but we have to keep constantly trying to move the ball forward. Um, And for me, a concern is, you know, we're experiencing historically low interest rates now, but we're also seeing dramatic increases increases in um, housing prices, um, list prices year over year, and as well as new construction is increasing at an astronomical rate. So when the market does, quote unquote, stabilize and interest rates do increase, you know, where where does that leave the first time entry level home buyer? So mm-hmm. that's a concern for me because there are certain buyers that are absolutely being priced out of the market. We have um, investors who have in, tapped into our market that are coming and sweeping, you know, whole communities. So that is a concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the the family that years ago would be buying the $150,000 Cordova home? That It doesn't exist anymore, right? Yeah. Uh, they're, they're just, they're, the prices are going higher and higher. And I know they're incredibly complex and nuanced problems that people smarter than me are likely going to have to have to help us out on because I, yeah. I don't know the solve. But I'm curious, practically, what as as realtors, as lenders, as insurance agents, as as whoever's involved in kind of the home buying process, what is it that we can do to ensure you know equal opportunity housing rights and fair and affordable housing to to be there um, in in the role that we serve within the process? I think is is we have to keep showing up, keep having the conversation with the right people that can make change and just continue to carry the ball because it's it's not something that's going to go away. And, you know, there are certain common, you know, uh, amenities of humans and home ownership is one of them. And we should have that, everyone should have that opportunity. So, you know, just keep having the conversation. We won't stop talking about it until that problem is solved. Mm. That's so good. That's so good. Um, one of the things I know that we talked about um, in the past and changing gears here a little bit, but kind of as we're leaning into my world of insurance, we, we get to have a little bit of conversation about roofing. Um, a lot of people don't know this about dun, me. Dun, dun. There we are, yes. <laughs> um, before my career at Shoemaker years and years ago, I spent three years in roofing. Um, and the thing that's uh, unique about that is the age of a roof can have a drastic impact on home insurance rate. I mean, sometimes $1,000 difference in premium wow. cost uh, just based off of um, the age of the roof because wind and hail claims are the number one claim we experience here in the Mid-South. Um, so because of that, those insurance companies know that you know, I'm probably going to have to pay for a new roof for this house if it's got an old roof on it. How much do you see buyers considering the age of a roof when they are kind of going through that process of, of finding a home and uh, seeing like this is a potential expense that I'm going to have on down the road? In my experience working with first-time home buyers, I personally do take that on because home buyers, first-time buyers are inexperienced, and most of them, I think it was something like 97% are moving from a rental property. So they don't know the maintenance or what comes along with um purchasing property and what that entails. So me as an agent, practicing skill and care and doing my due diligence, I'm like, hey, the first thing, give me that property condition disclosure. How old is this roof? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and truth be told, people don't, we're not going to just 
do a full tear off and replacement because it's old. It may be still functioning as intended, but I do want to make my buyer aware that, hey, this roof is 13 years old. It's near its economic the end of its economic life. And um, there's a possibility within the next few years, you may have to be replacing the roof. So, you know, just preparing them on the front end for that and what that may entail in the future. Yeah, because it's not uh, an inexpensive cost to do it. I mean, you you could be looking at ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in some cases to put um, a new roof on, and if that's that's a major expense in anybody's budget. But if you're not prepared for it, um, it can be devastating. It absolutely can. I want to change gears here a bit and talk about you as a person, though. Um, aside from uh, real estate, aside from the beauty industry, do you ever have any interesting jobs or side hustles that we haven't touched on? No, I have always been in the beauty industry. At one point, I was doing more weddings than I was being in the salon. But that atmosphere, I think it was like preparing me for real estate training because Stress. it was so intense. And it was always just so... Um, Intense is the only word that I can find for weddings. I was like, you know what? My pressure cannot keep taking this. (laughs) So back to the salon I went. That's funny. That's funny. Uh, What are you into when you're not selling real estate? I love to read. I'm, you know, rekindling my passion with reading. Um, What are you reading right now? What's your last book? I am reading David Goggins now, uh, Can't Hurt Me, Mm -hmm. and it is intense. The first chapter I read, I was in tears because it was so eerily similar to, you know, some of the things that I experienced in life. And I was just like, oh God, I need therapy because this is (laughs) really digging up some stuff I had buried for so long. So it's, he's intense, but the perseverance and the grit that he had is, is very inspiring. No, that book is, um, it's really good. I, I have been recommending that one by a great number of people. Uh, what movie have you seen more times than any other? Oh, God, Bridesmaids. Really? <laughs> I love a good comedy. I love to laugh, and that movie is hilarious. Yeah, no, that one's <laughs> definitely a favorite. Um, what are you watching on TV right now? I just finished uh, one of my clients. Uh, she recommended Jenny in Georgia, and I was seeing it on social media, so I'm like, hey, I can watch this while I'm doing stuff. So I just finished wrapped up Jenny and Georgia. Is this on Netflix? Netflix. Netflix. Yep. What is? I don't even know. What, I've never heard. Nobody this watches regular TV. I anymore. know. I know. <laughs> uh, so what is what is Jenny and Georgia? I don't even know what this show is about. Um, it's about a high school girl and her mom, um, and their dysfunction. Basically, her mom's <laughs> past is coming back to kind of haunt her. She's trying to turn over a new leaf and live this new life, but the past and the Stories that she's told are not so true, and they're coming back to oh, so hunt a dra- them in their so new It's a drama. Life. This is not yeah. a... Okay. I'm just thinking comedy for some reason, but that's... No, nope, not comedy. Okay. Uh, what's your go-to comfort food? Wine. <laughs> <laughs> just, does that count? Uh, nah, hey, I, it works for me. It's, uh, it's definitely a c- comfort involved there, for sure. Um, any, any personal or professional goals that you're hoping to achieve this year? I am going to start back training for the St. Jude half. Okay. So, Were you a, a runner at a different point in your life? Is that At one point, I was a runner, but I some kind of way diverted to bodybuilding. And my trainer was like, oh, yeah, you got to do an hour of cardio. I'm like, oh, okay, I can run for an hour. She was like, no running. Huh? Hmm. Oh. 
eats up your muscle in your legs, apparently. So I needed big leg muscles to uh, compete in bodybuilding. But come to find out, that wasn't for me. I like running much more. Um, Mm. I do still love lifting, but I like running more. It's more... uh, it's a great stress relief for me. Yeah. So I guess you got, uh, I said, it's at the end of the year, I think, right? So we got. Yeah. Plenty of time yes, to get ready. Seven, eight months and we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll make it happen, right? So um, most awkward thing that happens to you on a regular basis? I get told I look like someone everywhere I go. Is it the same person they're telling you look like or just? No, it's always something, someone different. I look like someone's cousin or their aunt or their mother. Really? And. I'm weird in a way that I have to find these people on Facebook <laughs> and add them as my friend. <laughs> so if you ever see me on Facebook and they say, hey, twin, it's because it's someone that they think someone thought that I looked like that person. So I have twins all over the place. That's it's because you've done all their hair and you made it look like how you like your hair. That's what it is. So that's funny. Um, what's your favorite Memphis event to attend? Barbecue Fest. Oh, I love it. You, uh... Just hanging out on on the river at the tent uh, in May, it's hard to beat that environment for sure. Yeah, and then there's barbecue. (laughs) Who doesn't like smoked pork, right? Once a year. (laughs) So good. So good. Living on the edge. Uh, What's the the weirdest thing you've seen in someone else's home? A jar of teeth. Don't know if they were human. Don't know if they were real. I was not trying to find out. That's so weird. Were they uh, like displayed prominently? Were they like hey. yeah, they were on the shelf, on the bookshelf, and I'm like, huh, interesting. Is this showing over yet? Mm, that's that's weird. Yeah, yeah. good there. Uh, favorite Memphis date night restaurant? I love. I'm loving Moon Dance right now. Um, I'm a, kind of obsessed with it, so I've, I've I've been quite a few times. Yeah, it's so good too. It's it's close to the office. So that's that's dangerous. And then they have the uh, the smoked old fashioned that they come yes. out of the box. And I'm a bourbon guy, so like, yeah, you give me a show and bourbon, then I'm gonna be hooked. Every yeah, it's time. amazing. So it's, it's a thing. <laughs> um, what's a, a new skill that you've learned recently? Um, I've learned how to work a sewing machine. Okay. I don't know how to make clothes yet, but there's something I am looking into. How about that? And that's a conversation I got to have with uh, Leon Dixon, I guess, a few months ago now, and how he uh, he can sew really well. And I listened something- to that podcast. Uh, there you go. I um, It's not something you hear of a lot of people that know how to do anymore, though, <laughs> so um, that's unique. Uh, favorite purchase of the last year? No shopping for me. I'm doing the total t- total money makeover with Dave Ramsey, so okay. I'm probably going to be selling a lot of stuff <laughs> like I've lost my mind soon. So still wrapping my head around letting go, yeah. um, but no spending. Okay. okay. No big purchases for me. All right. Last question. Stock. L- l- <laughs> <laughs> Last question. If someone wants to get in touch with you to discuss buying or selling their home, how can they do that? You can call me. I don't know if you guys see how much I like to talk, but my number is 901-859-8183. You can also email me at tiajennings.realtor at gmail.com. Awesome. And we'll make sure that her contact information is there in the show notes. Tia, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on the show today. I appreciate you, Dane, for having me. Thank you so much. Guys, and that does it for this episode of Key Exchanges in the 901. As always, we'll have all of our guests and all of our sponsors' contact information there in the show notes in case you'd like to reach them. And if you guys need to get in touch with me about the show or about something home insurance related for you or for one of your clients, you can always email me at dwilliams at shoemakerins.com. 
you liked what you heard today and you want to stay up to date on future episodes, make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you really like the show, you can leave us a review there because that helps us out a ton. Thank you so much for listening, and I can't wait to catch up with you on the next episode of Key Exchanges in the 901.